listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Andrew and talking about adopting a child with a serious health condition. And that'll be followed by questions from our audience. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Tor. Thank you so much for joining me. It's very kind of you. Thank you for having me. Is it extraordinarily windy where you are? It's uh, it's very windy. Yeah. You might hear some wind in the background. Yeah, my fence is not looking happy. It's it's definitely sort of waving a bit, so I'm a bit concerned. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. Um, so I was interested in talking to you because we're talking to some different people who have adopted children where there is some additional complexity over and above the adoption to that child's story. And I know that you adopted a child who had a serious health condition at the time of the adoption that you knew about. I just wonder if we can rewind to that point and maybe you can tell me just a little bit about how you got to that stage and then how you made the decision to consider a child with such a serious condition. Okay, so our eldest son, Ted, Teddy, we, my husband and I, we became aware of him because he sort of pinged up on Linkmaker, um, which obviously many adopters have access to. And when we sort of read about Ted, we were a little bit like, "Mm, yes, no, maybe, maybe this isn't right for us, because they'd listed that he had had stomach cancer. And that was a bit of a red flag for us, because if a child has stomach cancer quite young, normally it potentially means it's hereditary and then it will come back. So we were like, "Mm, maybe this isn't right for us. Then we went on some training uh, around foster for adoption and early permanency. And we met Teddy's, trying to remember the name of them now, social workers who, family finder. We met Teddy's family finder. And she was sort of talking to us and she was talking about sort of my background. So I work in education. My husband, John, works in cancer genetics. So that's quite a good understanding of cancer. And then she was just talking about what we're doing. And we kind of see these sort of uh, sort of cogs turning in her sort of head. And then a few weeks later, we sort of got approached by this family finder saying, oh, I've got this little child and here's a bit more about him. And then she sort of said, oh, it's it's Ted and showed us his picture and and she said yeah there was a, a, an issue on Linkmaker and that actually the type of cancer he had was a very rare form of childhood cancer called neuroblastoma which is cancer of the nerve cells and Ted was diagnosed at six weeks old and at this point he was in foster care his foster carer noticed he wasn't going to the toilet and they sort of went to the hostel, did all the scans, and what they found was that he had a tumour about the size of an apple in his pelvic region where his bladder should be. And we've seen the scans and the pictures, and the, the tumour's huge, and his bladder is just squished to one side. His, so six weeks, diagnosed at six weeks, goes into hospital, they sort of put together a, place, a, a care plan, so the plan is that he'll have some rounds of chemo with a view to operate to remove the tumour because it's also pressing on the um, the nerves going to his left leg. We're still in contact with Ted's foster carer. We still have yes. lots of um, conversations with her. Um, and we've got photos of sort of when he went into hospital all the way through to sort of having chemo and stuff. And we've got all the medical reports and stuff. And there were points where um, they were really concerned with um, how, how, he was, how he was doing and essentially the future for him and, and what that looked like. So he has his two rounds of chemo and he responds really well to chemo. And then 
probably when he was about six months, as I was sort of saying earlier, is when we became aware of him. And then we sort of officially, if you like, we came on the scene um, when he was nine months old. And so um, at that point, I guess, you know, we all go through the conversations about what things we could cope with, what things we couldn't cope with. I mean, this is a huge thing to cope with. And I just wonder, how did the two of you make that decision that you would even give this serious consideration? Gosh, we did. It was it was serious consideration. So we had a medical advisor appointment. I'm jumping, I'm jumping sort of the gun here. So like I said earlier, we, the family finder approached us and she said, I've got this child. I think you guys would be a really great match. And his pictures are absolutely adorable. They sort of obviously describe all about his personality and it sounds like absolutely adorable. And we think, wow, this is a child I think we potentially could be parents to. And there was something in his pictures that just drew us to him. And now that we knew a little bit more about that, it was neuroblastoma. And neuroblastoma, if you get it between the ages of birth and one, the outlook does tend to be a lot more positive. And especially because um, without sort of going too scientific and too into the biology of it, but the actual tumour and the histology of it and the um, genetics of it were very favourable. Um, we that, that also played within our decisions as well. So... We had, the me- we had a medical advisor appointment because we thought, yeah, let's, um, let- let's actually meet the medical advisor. Let's meet the social workers and go from there. And the medical advisor appointment was, I'm trying to think just how to describe it. It still sticks with me. It was, it- it was shell-shocking, if I'm being honest with you, Tor. It was really shell-shocking. What made it so shell-shocking for you? So the medical advisor was saying, this is a child. So she said, yeah, the cancer's regressed. He's in remission. But she was like, where it has it's affected nerves going down to his left leg she was telling us this child's not going to walk he probably won't be able to be toileted um it was real doom and gloom and we left that meeting and we were like wow okay this is a lot to sort of process and driving home from that meeting we sort of didn't talk in the car and we thought actually you know let's let's stop we stopped for a dinner at a pub and i remember it clearly we sat outside it was sort of a late summer's evening and we thought, okay, let's work about what's the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is that Ted, he doesn't walk, he can't go to the toilet. How's that going to impact us as a couple and as a family? And we literally, we thought, this is the worst case scenario. And we, in our heads, we were planning, that's the worst case scenario, but let's hope for the best. So we sat there and we we're like, one of us may have to give up work. We may have to do adaptions to our house. We'd have to think about sort of schooling sort of later on and how that but we thought that's all things that we could manage with him if the worst case happened. And so I guess to walk into a meeting where you know that you're talking about a child who's got cancer, there's already something huge on the table to add to that, that the impact of that cancer might not be in quotes only the illness itself, but also all of these knock on effects that could be lifelong. And you're there sort of discussing whether or not you could do that. Um, was that partly that you felt bonded to him specifically at that point, even though you obviously weren't in his life in that way, but had you formed that emotional connection? Because it sounds almost like you wanted to come up with a solution to those things. I'm, I'm smiling to myself because <laughs> we, we did want to come up with solutions. I think, I think we saw, and, and it is hard. I, it is hard looking at a picture and reading a profile and 
thinking gosh is that for me but then I, th- I think you just know as parents you just know something I think with Ted we just knew there was something about this little boy that he was ours no it's like we were his and he was ours yeah there was something yes. about him and I think we wanted to find a solution and we wanted to make it work and and we also our story is a little bit different to most uh, adopters in that we had this medical advisor appointment as on a Wednesday and then the day late a day later we actually met Ted Wow okay so that was very close together then it was I guess you must have felt that you had to make a fairly quick decision about proceeding or not. Yes so after the uh, initial meeting on the Thursday where we actually sort of met Ted and we weren't sort of committed or anything at that point we had the social workers did want to sort of a yes or a no because as I said it was a bit unusual that we did get to meet him before any kind of panel any kind of paperwork but that meeting on the Thursday kind of affirmed that decision that we made on the Wednesday that if things weren't, if things did go poorly or if things were really, really challenging and difficult and there was a point where he wasn't walking and he needed sort of care 24 hours, um, that, that didn't matter to us after that. Like I said, that meeting on Thursday, we were like, no, this is, this is right for us and we're, we're going to take it on. Wow, what a big decision. Did you also feel that excitement and that sort of buzz about it all because I guess there was an awful lot of very serious information being handed over could you feel that that buzz of potential parenthood looming and so on yeah definitely I, I remember as, as I was sort of saying earlier I was, I was away with work for four weeks and the day before I went away with work we knew that we were the family of choice for Ted oh. <laughs> and I remember that whole four weeks just like you say just that kind of sort of being excited and 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 almost like just wanting to nest and just start sort of parenting and actually I wasn't although he does still have medical needs which well we can have a chat about shortly but actually in some ways I became more concerned in terms of his cognitive development and how he would do sort of in education and in schools because there is a lot of uncertainty with with children who go through who go through the care system but we we sort of spoke John and me spoke a lot about this and we reflected a lot about this and we thought actually nature is important don't get me wrong but actually nurture is far more important and that's very much been our our mantra what we can put into our children now will hopefully hold them in good stead in adulthood yeah I get that completely I think you can't change what's gone before but by stepping in at that point their life is going to be as much better as you can possibly make it and that doesn't mean that you know you can make everything go away it doesn't you take them with that complexity but um I think you do know that at that point it's kind of the oh it's it sounds a little bit patronizing but it's kind of the best chance they've got or mm-hmm. you know one of several really good chances they could have if they're adopted into a family who's willing to throw everything at it and I think that's sometimes quite nice to think, well, okay, I can't undo the past, but I can kind of make the present as good as it can be and try to make the future as good as it can be. So so you'd, you'd obviously then met, and I guess things, did they move quite fast from that point? Yeah, very rapidly. So yeah. we'd <laughs> had the medical advisor, we'd met Ted the day, a day later, and then within sort of a week or two, we started getting all the paperwork to say, yeah, this is a formal match. And then we kind of went to panel and it obviously all went very well. And Ted came home. But then 
he's our oldest and our first our first child and then you get this little person in your house and you're like oh my god what do I do what have I done (laughs) and don't get me wrong I I, I love being a parent I wouldn't change it for, for, for the world but those first few weeks maybe even months nothing can can prepare you for them I would like I said I wouldn't change it for the world but it is life-changing and then on top of that we had to sort of bear in mind that Ted had an array of appointments an array of sort of medical things that we had to had to get our heads around as well yeah absolutely um I think that you know when you adopt this should give you an administrator and you should just be able to keep them because the paperwork and the appointments and the stuff um and and yeah I mean any new child any new baby coming into your house you're so busy you can't believe that it takes up absolutely all your time and for you it must have been even more complex because I guess there were these ongoing medical issues was he day-to-day ill and was his cancer being sort of day-to-day managed at that stage or had he had the treatment that he was having and was there some sort of lull in that regime? So at this point, when he's home with us, his cancer's in remission, so he's had his two rounds of chemo, which he responded super well to, but then what we're picking up is sort of the after effects, if you like. So the chemo, I mean, obviously, as we all sort of know that chemo is quite toxic, and it can have various side effects. So a potential one for Ted was um, around hearing and hearing loss. So sort of back and forth to audiology appointments. And th- that was an emotional roller coaster. At one point, uh, sort of we were told, oh, his hearing's fine. And then, oh, no, his hearing's not great. He's going to have to have hearing aids. And then we're told his hearing's fine. And you're constantly sort of on this roller coaster of like, things are good, things are not good, things are good. Then we were also sort of running back and forth to sort of physio appointments. So after his chemo, he became... Um, frog-legged in if you sort of imagine a baby lying down and imagine sort of their knees up that's how his legs permanently were right yeah so he had to do a lot of work with uh, physio to sort of get his legs down so right leg responded super well to all of that um left leg not so much so we as i said back and forth and we were doing um things such as like serial casting so each week putting his foot in a cast and then slowly moving his ankle up so he gets a bit more mobility in the left leg so although in terms of the the chemo side was done by the time he came home there was lots of appointments and even now we still have various appointments and we're sort of five years down the line yeah that sounds like an awful lot of things it personally I wouldn't have even anticipated even if I took a child with that complexity I don't know that I would have really thought through all of the knock-on effects and all of that were you were you both planning on working during that and did you manage to so I took a year adoption leave and my husband, John, took four months. And then I decided, I made the decision to return to work part-time purely because I thought the adoption process is long and gruelling at the best of times. And I wanted to spend time with our children while they were young. So while they were still not a sort of like compulsory school age, I wanted to be at home with them for at least a couple of days so some of Ted's appointments I did manage to fit around my days off when I was at home with him, but then other times I'd have to take time off work to go to sort of various hostel appointments or clinic appointments. Was your work supportive of that? Fortunately, yes, yeah. But I think they understood that here is a child that has quite a complex medical history and they, they were very supportive 
I'm really glad to hear that because otherwise I guess it would have been impossible to continue. Yeah, 100%. And I was once we knew that we'd been matched with Ted, I did sort of say to my work, and John said to his work, that look, we are going through the process. There is a bit of a his, medical history here and we will have to have appointments. And luckily, both sides of our, um, our, our work were quite supportive. Can I ask you something? Well, I'll, I'll ask it and then and then you do with it as you wish. But um, I wonder at points, did you feel like you might lose him or did you hold back on how you were for fear of losing him? You know, those dark nights and the, you know, mm-hmm. sort of 3 a.m. worries, that kind of thing. I just wonder where your mind went in those places and how you coped with that. I'm I'm such a warrior at the best of times and I will think about <laughs> 10,000 things at once. So his foster carer, when she was sort of with him at the real, real sort of early stages, there were days where they did think they would lose him. And even the doctor said, we're going to lose him. He pulled through, uh, bless him. But even now, and even in those first few sort of weeks of him being here, I... And my, 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 my mind would panic and I'd be like, oh my gosh, what if this does, does come back? And I saw recently, just to give you an example as well, like on the news, on the BBC News, there was an article around neuroblastoma and it was following three families where children have got neuroblastoma or it's come back. And it's called high grade if it comes back because it's very hard to treat. Right. And then I just start panicking, oh gosh, what if Ted's comes back? So yeah, there are times where I do sort of worry and I do have those 3am wake up thinking oh my goodness however I've got to the way we sort of manage it is I guess trusting everything the doctors and the professionals have told us and that for him the as I was saying that the biology of the tumour was very favourable and he's um he's, he's doing very well. Yeah and I guess you have to dare believe it could be all right as well you can't stay in that what if bear in mind all the time that's so much easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. I think if you do, you just drive yourself crazy living in that what if stage. I think you've got to also live in the moment as well and and take each win as it comes. So as we sort of talked about earlier, we were told he wouldn't walk. But then at he took his first steps actually 11 months with a walker. Wow. Yeah, it was, I'm just, it, yeah. it, was, it, was, mag- it was magical. It was magical. I actually got quite tearful when, I, when he started taking his first steps. And then he was walking independently at about 15 months. So it is also about, like, as you're saying, like living in the moment as well and then taking each small win as it comes. That's fantastic. And how is his health and the ongoing effects now? So um, I'm just massive smile on my face because we're almost in March, we'll be five years cancer free, which wow. is a huge milestone because, yeah, it's a huge milestone. In terms of after effects, we still have lots of medical appointments at the minute. So at the moment, our biggest thing is physio. So we still have lots of issues with his left leg um, and his Achilles ankle um, and tendon being very tight. So he walks up on tiptoes on that left leg. So there's, um, he's just recently had an operation to um, t- to help with that. But we're pretty, what's the word? Hospital is quite normalised to us. We kind of just, me and Ted, we walk in, breathe it. The nurses all know him, you know, all the doctors, <laughs> and he just he just goes with the flow, which also comes with its own. Like it's great that he he's used to that environment. He's fine when they're putting him to sleep. But then, on the other hand, it's quite sad that a five year old 
that environment has become quite normalised. Yes, it's a thing he shouldn't ever have to know, isn't it? And yet does. Yeah, very much so. But the way we sort of say to him and explain to him is that it's ultimately what is best for him. And what does he understand about what's gone on in his life and what his health has been like and what the ongoing effects are? So we do show him pictures regularly when he he was quite little to sort of explain that he had this um, illness and it made him very sick and he had to spend time in hospital. And he he likes to play doctors now. That's his favourite game. Okay. Um, And I think part of that is spending time in hospital. And also um, for certain illnesses, so it started out as um, for children who had cancer, but actually they've rolled the programme out to various different children who've got various different illnesses such as, say, for example, like diabetes or um, certain genetic disorders, they're called beads of courage. So every time we have an appointment, Ted gets like a little bead. So, for example, uh, like a a light blue bead is a clinic bead where like we visited the oncologist or we visited the audiologist. A pink bead is where they put him to sleep to do a procedure. So what we would do regularly, especially just before we're about to sort of come up to a big hostel appointment, is we will get the beads of courage out and we will talk about all these different beads and we'll explain some of the various different things that have, um, that, that he's been through. That's a, a nice way of making it talkable about and I guess also marking that experience. Yeah, yes, there's a much. lot of them, which must be quite difficult. Yes, there is. There is an awful lot of them. And, and equally, it's quite, it was interesting seeing the beads that his foster carer had collected so since the beads that he's come home and we're now uh, since after about a year ago we're now at the point where we've actually sort of got more beads than what he had when he was in foster care yes um, you've done more of this journey with him yeah 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 and it's it is a lot and it's quite I, I sometimes don't think friends and family always understand actually what this what this little one's been through no, absolutely, because you know adoption is complex enough, and with all of this on top, then you are going to be dealing with layers of complexity on top of other layers of complexity. Um, how's he doing, sort of more day to day in terms of you know the adoption and the just family life and school and you know all of those things? How are all of those? Day to day, he's he, he's amazing. He's he just takes everything in his stride. Bless him. He. He's started school in September. He's absolutely loving school. Not so much writing, but loves reading. Um, <laughs> Who needs writing? I mean, you know, seriously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with everything's typing now. Exactly. Um, I know. They, my kids call me a boomer, which I'm not, by the way. I'm 46. <laughs> but they do call me a boomer. And it is. It's like, why do we even need school? There's Google. It's like, well, it, it is hard yeah. to come up with a good answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then sort of in terms of we do we do he, he knows he's adopted we've we've got pictures of his birth mother and birth father and we share them with him regularly all very age appropriate and we're just slowly drip feeding in that that life story work with him just just so he's aware that actually okay he's, he's been adopted he's got this medical history but that doesn't define him that's just a part of him yes and it's it's down to him to sort of carve his own place in life if that makes sense absolutely um does he know that the illness he had is called cancer yes how much he understands what cancer is I don't know yeah yeah um because obviously as a word you know we struggle with it socially a little bit it's quite a shocking word and it's got you know a lot of baggage with it and stuff but I guess if he knows that word from being small and knows that is the word for the medical condition he's had then you know perhaps it doesn't quite have 
that connotation because you know I guess he's always known that word then yeah and that was our thinking with it we didn't want the word to be a taboo and we didn't want it to be such a shock that say for example hit teenage years and then we were like oh okay you know we told you have this medical thing well actually this is what it's called and as you say as you become older you become more socially aware of um how devastating cancer is and can be yes so, so our thinking was let's just not make the word a taboo yeah I can see that absolutely and um how did your partner cope working in cancer while having a child with cancer it, it was tough it was really tough for um for John at times especially I guess it was that kind of what if that we were sort of discussing isn't it is that what if it came back or um but then equally I think having that background in cancer genetics I think he understood a lot more about what neuroblastoma is yes i can i can see that that being able to draw on a pool of knowledge and and so on would be useful but you know i can't imagine it it takes any of the difficulty away at all and so you then i guess both decided that life wasn't complex enough and that you should have a child should we talk about that <laughs> yeah we did we did we, tell um, you all about it. yeah we thought mm, let's uh let's do, let's do this again yes yeah, we um, are <laughs> We adopted our second son, Finn, uh, two years ago, and he's he's just slotted in really well. It's almost as if he's always he's always been here, and um, he, he has such a lovely relationship with Ted, and yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> and uh, was he a baby when he came to you as well? Yeah, yeah, he was under one. He was a foster for adoption placement or um, early permanence placement, which was very interesting during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I bet it was. Do you want to say a little bit about what that is and then how it worked for you, if that's OK? Yeah, of course. So early permanence is where um, social workers are doing their parallel planning. So where they thought adoption would be the best route for this for a child, but they haven't got the placement order from the courts. So what they do is place a child with potential adopters who act as foster carers whilst they're sort of going through the court system to gain the placement order and then whilst uh, they're with their adoptive families uh, brackets I guess foster carers you, you sort of do all the normal stuff that the foster carers did or do yeah but that must also include all of the contact and so on I guess you're having to do as well which from people that have done it I've heard can be immensely busy and demanding as well in terms of time Yes, yeah, so we did have to do contact and the daily foster care reports, which I actually found that the daily foster care reports quite, um, if I'm being honest, quite tedious at times and quite long. Contact wasn't, it was a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because contact was during the pandemic and it was during lockdown. There was no face-to-face contact. So Finn had to have virtual contact, which with a 10-month-old baby on a screen was quite difficult. Oh, gosh, and that was three times a week. So Finn was in a high chair, had some toys in front of him, birth mother was up on the screen. And it was quite tough trying to entertain Finn. So he would engage with birth mother for half an hour. We had to do that three times a week and sometimes he'd be asleep. And so what did you do if he was? The social workers asked would I take the camera up to his bedroom just so birth mother could see him sleeping. Okay. Which, Which was fine. And for her, I guess it was nice to see him sort of feeling secure and being able to sort of sleep and um and, and I kind of hope for her it sort of just yeah just gives her some nice memory seeing him sort of sleeping and 
because he, he looks very cute when he sleeps. <laughs> and then his final contact, so his wish you well meeting, that was face to face. And were you at that? I wasn't supposed to be. So, but because Finn hadn't seen birth mum for many months, he didn't recognise her and he'd been at home with us for a good three months at this point. So he'd started to develop his attachments. So I left the contact centre and then I got called back 10 minutes later um, and had, and they, the social workers asked would I help facilitate the final, uh, the wish you well meeting. Gosh, that must have been incredibly hard. Yeah, it really was. I, I, I didn't realise just that's the emotional impact, I think, and the emotional toll, if I'm being honest, the toll it took on me until a few days later. Is I, I'd got back to the contact centre and Finn was just in floods of tears and clinging to me while birth mum is trying to pull him off me because she wants to play with him I totally understand why and and why she she wanted to have cuddles with him and because it's hard like no birth parent plans or imagines this will happen in their life and it's not my job to demonize or judge them at all so she was very emotional throughout the entire sort of uh, session as well it was um yeah it was very hard gosh I'm I'm I can't really imagine going through that and seeing that final goodbye and yet I guess you were there for him during it and that that probably really mattered even though he was so young and you know may not have those conscious memories of it I guess he needed your presence because he needed you you know he wouldn't obviously have the concept of the significance of the encounter but I guess in future it's something you can say that you were with him for yeah I agree yeah and we talk a lot about what's the word I'm looking for putting things into uh, it's a, it's a stuff that goes into your children unconsciously. And I think we all do this loads as parents and we, do, we just do things because we just do because we're their parents and it's in their best interest. And it goes back to them becoming sort of that all rounded kind of happy individual. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's, it's quite hard and an experience written up on paper where you read the child went through this thing or that thing. Even something that's very routine like that, you're calling it a wish you well meeting. I guess when we did it, it was called a, a goodbye meeting. But I, I suppose you read about that having happened and you don't ever really think about what that moment to moment experience was like. Yeah, yeah, no, you don't. I think unless you're saying you, you, you're there and actually the impact that has on has on sort of the, the child indeed um do you have contact with the birth mum or is that not carried through sadly no and that's for both our boys we do have letterbox and we do send annual letters but sadly birth families aren't in a position where they will engage but we have said i mean both the adoption orders have been granted for both boys but we have said to social services if at any point either sort of birth family approaches them and says they would like to meet us we're still happy to do that that's really nice I don't know many people who have face-to-face contact just one or two um but it's one of the things that my own child raises sometimes is can we meet and I'm it's one of the things that we're sort of processing at the moment is whether or not that's a good idea during childhood and I just I don't know and I don't know enough people who've done it to really get a feel for does this work well or does this open up huge cans of worms? But it sounds like you would be open to it. Do you think that's partly because they were foster to adopt placements, which means you had more contact in the first place than is usual in just a straightforward adoption? 
Do you know, honestly, I don't know. And I think we, we've sort of gone back and forth loads. And again, I'm not sure young childhood would be the most appropriate place for that face-to-face contact, perhaps maybe teenage. And I do think, and I hear what you're saying, I do think it definitely can open a can of worms. But then I think maybe on the other hand, it might be beneficial, I think, for some children to potentially have that face-to-face contact. But then I think that's part of a bigger a bigger conversation sort of uh, with DFE and the government about how you would manage that and and how that would be how that would be done and risk assessed and so on but I do think I think given what Ted went through I think it's a big part of the reason why we would be more than happy to have potentially that kind of face-to-face contact whether that be I don't know once a one-off or a once a year just so his birth family can see that actually Yes, he has got a complicated medical past. Yes, we do still have some medical needs, but actually he's doing very well medically. Yeah, I can see that there's probably other layers to it in your circumstance, absolutely. And how's Finley doing now? Yeah, he's doing uh, very good. He's um, <laughs> he's uh, he, he's very cheeky, but he's very, very charming. He, um, he just has the most charming little smile that everybody just absolutely adores. And he, he copes very well with... Um, so for example Ted's got his he's got a cast on his foot at the moment and and that that could be quite scary for little ones to see but actually he copes very well with seeing that or sometimes one of us will go off with um Ted for the days in hostel and Finn copes sort of very well yeah no he's he's doing very well he's doing very well I can hear you smiling as you talk about them both I can hear in your voice that you're changing into a smile yeah yeah I, I do I just I, I, like I said at the beginning when we sort of uh, sat down like I, w- I wouldn't change it for the world it's the hardest job in the world but I wouldn't change it for the world and equally we had so much and even now there's uncertainty there's always going to be uncertainty with any child whether it's a birth child or an adopted child you just never know what's going to happen but it's about doing what is best for you and for us we always worked on the mantra hope for the best plan for the worst and maybe I don't know maybe we over planned with um with Ted but for us, I think that paid off. We've got an amazing, we've got two amazing, beautiful boys. Oh, that's just absolutely lovely. Um, and one of the reasons that we really wanted to talk to you was that some children who've got complex medical needs or huge medical uncertainty, um, they wait a long time to find families mm-hmm. and some of them don't find families. And so I just wonder what your advice would be to the people who are thinking about that or who were almost thinking, oh, gosh, I think maybe that's something that only other people can do, you know, or super dads can do or whatever, you know. I just wonder what your advice would be to people who are thinking about it. So my advice would be very much like the mantra that we've gone by, hope for the best and sort of plan for the worst. If you read about a child and you think, oh, gosh, I'm not sure I can cope with this. And then equally, trust in professionals to a certain extent, <laughs> when I say to a certain extent, doctors never work in certainty. So uh, the doctors, the oncologists will never say to us, oh, um, Ted will be 100% cure. They they just work in, his cure rate is 99%. Yes. So I think you just have to be mindful of that, that. And doctors will, especially medical advisors, will sometimes portray perhaps maybe the worst possible things, but that, that's their job. But you need to be able to sit down and digest that information and then f- think about does that fit into your your world and and and, and could you manage manage that those those would be my top two is hope for the best but plan for those sort of really difficult situations and whatever information you get just digest it don't 
don't sort of think, oh my gosh, they've said this person's not going to do this or they're not going to do that. I think you've got to sit down, take the, and this is hard, take the emotion out of it and quiet, try and be a, a little bit analytical with the information that you've been given. Yeah, I can understand that. I can see that you almost have to, I guess you've always almost got to manage quite carefully how that information runs through your brain and how to deal with that ongoing uncertainty. Because of course, you know, if the medical people can only say 99%, the temptation to snatch onto that 1% is must be quite high. And so I can see that um, that sort of dual approach, if you like, as mm-hmm. you say, is is um, a good thing to do. Um, so you've got some big milestones coming up, as you said, that, you know, in March, um, the milestone of your child having been cancer-free for five years. And what after that? Any more on the horizon? <laughs> As any more children? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to adopt a third. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. John and me were talking about this actually. Oh, really? I'm sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd quite like to go go again. Um, I think we probably won't though, if I'm being honest. And we've got a, a three bedroom house. Our boys have a bedroom each. Um, my sisters, when they were little, they shared and they hated it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe not. Unless I have a lottery win or something. Yeah. Are you googling loft conversions? <laughs> <laughs> I am right now. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, whatever you decide, I hope it's awesome. And, you know, very best of luck with the future with it all. But thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Jamie from New Family Social, who's brought us some questions from our listeners. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Tor. How are you? Absolutely fine. Thank you. What questions have you got for us? So we've had a question about who do I share my child's information with? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, because I guess all of our children come to us with a backstory that contains some sensitive information, some less sensitive information, some things that are perhaps socially taboo. So, for example, the reason for your child's adoption or the reason for your child's fostering placement might feel like a thing that you would keep more private than other things about the child that you might keep less so, like whether they've got other siblings out there in the world. What are your thoughts on it, Jamie? Well, I think the key thing is that you always got to be aware that once the child's, once the information's out about the, the child, whatever that might be, it's out there and you're not going to get it back. And then also I was really aware that for our children that it was their information as well. So I didn't want to kind of preempt what they might want to say or own later on. So that kind of always played on my mind when I was sharing information. I can understand that. It's really difficult because often we want support from people and we want people to show our child understanding. And generally people don't have a really nuanced understanding of all of these things but without giving them any information it can be quite hard sometimes to request that understanding how have you navigated that I think I made a couple of mistakes early on so with parents from one of the schools it was really good and I got on really well and I maybe overshared and it was just such a relief to overshare with somebody who was kind of in in my local proximity and then once I'd said that, I was a bit nervous that that information had got out there. Now, it turned out she was great and she didn't share that information, but it, it created quite a lot of, I think I'd given, I divulged too much too early to somebody. And that was a really useful lesson. Now, luckily, I chose somebody who was really brilliant, but it did give me cause for concern. And then I kind of navigated about, I kind of went down a professional and a friend's route with professionals, so teachers, doctors, I was much more open and they kind of got it. And I could also be a bit more direct and say, this information is not to go out there. This is for you to help explain the current situation with my child or 
you know, I want you to take this on board because there are this health concerns because my child was previously in care and had this background. I would, I felt much more comfortable not only saying the issue to the professional, but actually coaching it in language saying this information is private and can't go out there. It was very much harder to say that to people you were chatting with. So I tend to have a school gate people and friend people, different levels of information. And sometimes I would just say, oh, that's my child's information to give, or I'm not ready to share that information. I would just have these little phrases that I would use or just really change the subject as well. I know what you mean. I guess sometimes it's hard, though. So um, one of my children has a friend who has a particular issue in their life. And when that friend comes to play, it's very useful to have been taken into trust on that issue because we can just be more aware of it and more sensitive to it and make sure that child is is welcome here and has the kind of coping strategies available that they need. And I think, but I do think it's quite brave of the parents who have given us that piece of information because it, it does allow us to be flexible on how we approach things here and more sensitive about it. But it does, of course, risk that we, you know, we could talk about that more openly and so on and, and put that family in quite a difficult position. So I think it's quite a hard line to walk, isn't it? You know, we want people to understand our child's perspective and thinking of the podcast that we've just heard, a child who's got an illness that is still socially quite a difficult topic. You know, we talked in the podcast about the word cancer and whether that was used. And so if you don't tell anyone those things, how can they make allowances? But at the same time, if you do, you risk kind of being labelled in a way and your child being labelled in a way that you might not want to be permanent. Yeah, I mean, if... You had told my earlier self that I'd be having these conversations with teachers and stuff. I would have really kind of backed away from it because I'm relatively private and I can't ever imagine sharing some of our family history and our kids' history with people outside the family, especially with teachers and stuff. But I find myself now going going there quite freely to protect the child and justify their behaviour or to make the children, sorry, make the teachers be more aware that these children have got a difficult backstory because it's very easy for teachers with 30 in a class to suddenly say this child is behaving like this because they're you know a naughty child or didn't get what they want whereas actually I want them to remember that they should be celebrated for actually getting into school and being at school and being able to work so I quite often go in with um, well first let's just do an applause because brilliant he came into school today and then deal with the issue so but I it's definitely been a journey for me about how I could, what to share and when to share and who to share it with. When you said that you shared it too, you know, too much with that um, parent in the earlier days, do you think that was you letting off steam almost, a way of seeking support for yourself too? It was. It was definitely kind of, um, I think with my really close friends who had been with me obviously prior to adoption, I was really nervous about sharing some of their his, some some of the children's history, because I wanted them to be see the children as our children and hold children with no issues. I was when I first started, I really wanted to kind of protect the children's reputation so they wouldn't be kind of coloured in a particular way or their behaviour looked at. So I was really aware I was doing that. But when I was speaking to somebody of other school age children who wasn't in my social circle, it definitely felt like thank goodness I can actually say, you know, what we're going through and what the child's been going through and how difficult it is and how difficult school has been. So, and I guess I felt guilty that I'd shared that information outside, but I definitely needed to do it. 
Yeah, I recognise that. I think at points, and again, early days, actually, I was a bit overly frank and probably wouldn't be now. But I'm, I'm interested in those long-standing friendships. You know, your friends that you kind of confide in and that you, you know, you tell all your sort of sordid moments to and stuff like that, those long friendships that go back a bit. Yeah. I think it's sometimes quite hard then to later refuse to share information. And I found that socially quite difficult with people who I was really close with to then say, actually, the boundary is now different. This is not my information. It's my child's and the boundary is different. And I found that really hard. Yes, I agree. Because they want to have your friends want to come and help and they want to know the story so they can help and offer advice. And if they can see you're, you're struggling with a particular child or an issue or just feeling looking down they want to know the real reason for it you know quite you know reasonably as I would do as a friend I'd want to try and get in there and help but sometimes you have to pull back and say well this is this the child's information this is the and if I give you this information I can't get it back and I'm really nervous about giving that information out yeah I recognize a lot of that I've got another question here Jamie which came in which again is linked to the things that we were talking about in the podcast Someone asked us um, at one of the Q&A sessions that we did about if you are part of um, a couple or other relationship, how do you look after each other when things get difficult? So I just wonder, you know, how do you do that yourself or what have you talked to members about in terms of that? You know, it's a cliche, but being really open, opening the bottle of wine for somebody would really always help. (laughs) (laughs) Recognising when they need to go out and get a chocolate bar uh, and that kind of thing. You know, I'm not even joking about that because sometimes, you know, you just need somebody caring for you because you're caring for the other kids or you're dealing with it. Because in my relationship, one of us deals much more with the schools and stuff and and Mm. kids caring. And that carries a lot of weight because when the school called, I'll always ask for one parent in particular because there's kind of some continuity there. So there can be a bit of weight on that of being shared that you need to share it with it. So that's been really important just to kind of recognize when somebody gets more information than another one and then actually asking them to share that information if that makes sense you know sometimes you need to prize information because sometimes i haven't wanted to share everything which is going on with the child's life with my partner because they might be having a difficult time at work or for example i think well that can wake up the weekend you know i would definitely share it but i'll i'll kind of edit when i tell that that because of the time frame, because there might be something complex going on at work or whatever. Yeah, I can understand that. There's timings for, for that. I can understand that. I think it's difficult. It's okay if one of you is struggling and the other isn't. That seems then really obvious. But I think when both of you start to drown, it can be really, really hard because you know you can almost end up fighting over the life ring, can't you? You know, the what do they call it? Life belt, whatever it is, where you're kind of doing that competitive who's the most tired, who's the most exhausted. And I think that can be really, it's really counterproductive. Um, Someone gave me advice before we became parents, which was when you have the 3 a.m. arguments about who's going to deal with the child, forgive quickly, because the only reason you're having that argument is you're both kind of at the end of your tether in that moment. And that was quite good advice, really, is it's not necessarily worth picking apart that argument in the morning, just kind of chalk it up to experience and move on. So that was useful, but I think it's hard. I definitely agree with that because... You know, prior to kids, I don't think we ever really argued. So I'm not saying we're really sappy singing down the fields, hand in hand, skipping along <laughs> with music playing in the background, although that happened quite a lot. Um, <laughs> it was very expensive to pay for the orchestra following us around everywhere, though. Um, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but after the kids came, there was loads and loads of times where we would squabble and stuff and still do, but we are really quick to apologize and recognize that that's what it is, you know, that, or sometimes I'm in my parent voice and I might use my parent voice <laughs> to my partner by mistake, but I get told quite quickly I've done that. <laughs> so um, a quick apology um, always helps, I think. And I think it is really difficult, but I guess the flip side of that, which is lovely, is that nobody on earth cares about your children as much as you and your partner do. And so those things of sharing their small triumphs, that's lovely. And I think there's a huge intimacy to that where you sort of say, you know, look at this picture or look at this thing that they've attempted or, you know, there was this bit of progress or whatever it was. And that that is lovely when you share that because essentially that's the family that you've created and they're the nice bits of that family that you've created. Yeah, I agree. And we have, we've also had people call in and I remember it was probably a couple of years ago now and somebody was chatting about a very difficult experience with, with their kids and and with their partner and they were kind of bickering all the time. And it's just about recognizing when somebody also doesn't need, there isn't a solution out there. Sometimes it, the way that it helped him was somebody said his partner said to him well what do you want to do there, there wasn't anything to do you know there was some difficulties at school they'd got the professionals in this was the situation there was no other options left and actually being told we have to put one foot in front of the other was really useful for him now that's not going to work for everybody but for that particular couple he found that useful saying okay this is the brick wall i now have to work out a way to get through it i can moan but I also know I need to get over it for my kids' sake. Yeah, I, I think that's really useful advice as well. And, you know, you were sort of joking at the start about handing over wine and chocolate and things like that. But again, if that's one of the ways that your partner feels cared for, then actually just that gesture without trying to problem solve, without having to rake through it all again, can be really, really useful. Just, you know, that somebody hands you a cup of hot chocolate and you feel a whole lot better about the day or, or something. I think that's immensely useful too. Yeah, I wasn't joking about it. <laughs> Are you drinking wine now, Jamie? Yeah. If he's listening to this, then there'll be a glass of wine waiting by the sofa when I get in tonight. Oh. <laughs> well, that's fabulous. Thanks ever so much, Jamie. Thanks, Joel. I'd like to thank my guest today, Andrew, and the listeners who sent in their questions via the contact form on our website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.